The podcast will begin after this message. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bayer. We address some of the world's most pressing global challenges and continue to develop new solutions. As the population continues to grow and its age increases, we will need better medicines and high-quality food in sufficient quantities. To learn more, visit www.bayer.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, we're going green again. I'll talk to Christian Ruby, who's pushing electrification as a way to clean our energy systems, and to my colleague Anka about her wild test drive in a hydrogen-powered car. But first, can we just talk about the Queen and Brexit for a second? This is my new favourite topic. Boris Johnson's government is so gung-ho about leaving the EU on October 31, never mind what they blow up in the meantime, that it's hard not to start wondering about the Queen, or indeed the future King Charles, and how a government with a one-seat majority and a lot of enemies could easily end up dragging Her Majesty into what is already a royal Brexit mess. I'm not predicting anything, I'm just saying that with this government, as with President Trump, it pays not to rule anything out. Speaking of transatlantic analogies, all attention being heaped on Dominic Cummings right now, the new most powerful advisor in Downing Street, it all reminds me of the profile that Steve Bannon gained as Trump entered the White House. So here is a prediction. When the advisor becomes the story, in the long run, it never ends well. Back to green themes now. The European Union was literally built on coal. It started as a coal and steel trading community in the early 1950s. But in 2019, we've just seen the greenest election ever, producing the greenest parliament ever, which in turn delivered the greenest commission forward agenda ever. Even in Europe's brownest country, Poland, activists and opposition parties have flight shamed and scandal shamed the Speaker of Poland's parliament out of his job. He took more than 100 government flights last year, creating a campaign lightning rod ahead of the October parliament elections. So today, the question in Europe isn't whether to go green, it's how green and how fast. Let's hear from Christian Ruby. Joining me now on the podcast is Christian Ruby. He's the Secretary General of Euroelectric, which is the association advocating for Europe's electricity industries, let's say. Welcome, Christian. Thank you very much. Now, we've known each other many years. You used to work for the Climate Commissioner inside the European Commission when I was working for the Digital Commissioner, so it's good to be chatting again. Uh, and we got you on the podcast this week because we're going green again. We've got a series, EU Confidential Goes Green, and we wanted to talk to you about the electrification alliance that you've been involved in getting off the ground since 2017. And I thought it was very appropriate. We're here in your new offices near the Brussels Central Station, and you've been doing a big transition and a big transformation, and that's what Europe is going to have to do with all of its energy as well. So maybe start by telling us a little bit about this alliance and where it's going to go in this new commission. I really sense that we are seeing a decisive shift in the pace. We've advocated this for a while in the electricity industry because we see opportunity from this agenda. We know that the 
energy we use in society eventually will need to be much more electric than it is today if we want to deliver on the green promises. We need to get rid of oil. We need to get rid of coal. That's already happening. And we need to get rid of the fossil fuels in general. And that leaves us with a set of options that are overwhelmingly or foremostly electric. And this is the background for the electrification alliance that I am um, established together with the other electric associations, if you will, back in 2017. And so that's like solar, wind, all of those sort of associations. Exactly. Essentially, the ones that can contribute to a electric or more electric carbon-free energy system for Europe. I came from the wind industry back then, where I had been chief of the policy development and advocacy. And I really saw that there was this unhelpful and counterproductive division and discussion fights even if you will inside the sector where the big power association your electric was saying no to the renewables and there were a lot of fights between all the individual associations so we came up with this idea to say let's join forces to really show that decarbonization means electrification and vice versa that these two things are intrinsically and undividedly linked. And this is what we started out doing in 2017. And since then, the alliance has grown and we're more than 50 um, companies and associations involved today, from Tesla to Eon, the whole bunch is, is there. And where does something like coal-powered electricity fit in? Like that's the background and the history of your organization. Does it mean that those coal power plants are just sort of off in the background somewhere or are they sort of working as a minority inside your organization? You know, coal was really the fundamentals not only of your electric but also of the European Union, as you remember. Coal and steel, right? That's where the union started. Now, we are in a very different world. There's still coal left in the power sector, but it's really on a fast track to leave. Just yesterday, Platts published numbers for the coal capacity in Northwestern Europe. Over the next five years, 70% of all the coal capacity will have left the system. Five years. Wow. Between, between now and five years 2025. Time. Yeah. That's it's well, amazing. That's bad news for Poland. <laughs> Well, that was Western Europe. Okay. So so we have different starting points in this transition, and it's going to take a bit longer, especially in Poland and, and also in Germany. But it's very clear that a strong and deeply felt determination in our sector to lead the charge, as we say, to really show the way, lead the way towards a cleaner and greener and more electrified society. So the CEOs, which I have the contact and that have all signed up to the Electric Vision, which says that we want to be carbon neutral before everybody else and we want to be carbon neutral well before mid-century, they've all signed up to that and now they're taking action. We did the vision two years ago and now they are implementing their plans for how to get rid of coal, which is the first necessary step, frankly speaking. That's something I really noticed at the Paris Climate Summit a couple of years back, where it seemed very clear to me that regardless of whether the leaders came through and were able to sign a declaration, the corporations were effectively going to take action anyway. Now, on the leadership side, you've got most governments on board. You've got the commission and the parliament at the EU level, they're on board. But then it seems to be some of those national governments at the council level that tend to be a bit of the block in going further. Where is your relationship with in terms of new people like Ursula von der Leyen and that whole new set of MEPs that you're going to rely on to take some of this forward? So I was very lucky to meet von der Leyen very briefly just before she gave her decisive speech in the parliament. I, I, I was 
just seeing her when she went into the car going to the parliament and wished her good luck. And I must say that I found her, her speech very inspirational. It was a speech that captured both, let's say, the fact that the climate has really changed in the mindset of Europeans to be a core issue to deal with, but it also captured a number of other crucial issues in our time, gender equality, migration, the general shift in the economy towards value creation rather than just looking at indicators. So I think she will be an excellent new president of the commission. I'm, I'm very hopeful. And now we're in the process of basically meeting all the new MEPs. As you know, it's more than two thirds that are actually brand new. We could spend five years just meeting new MEPs at this rate. <laughs> well, I, I hope to spend five months meeting all of them and then we can talk policy because it's also very clear that we've spent five years doing a very ambitious piece of legislation called the Clean Energy Package. Now, it's also very clear that there's a political ambition to do more. So we're very keen, of course, to be in touch with people to discuss how can this be done effectively, because we see opportunity here, but we also have to be honest and say it's also challenging. And is there enough coordination? I mean, one of the big struggles that I remember from my time inside the commission was when you work on a horizontal issue like this, mm. it's really hard to move it up every individual department's agenda. They all know they're supposed to do something about it. They all know they're supposed to care, and it's number four or five on a lot of people's lists. But sometimes it never gets to be number one on anyone's list. What, what are you going to do to make sure it is number one or number two? I think you're right, and, and I think that silo challenge was really very prevalent in the Barroso II Commission when we were inside, if you will. I think we made some strides, and for example, the current EU seven-year budget is testimony to the fact that there was actually an ability also to overcome the silos. The budget that is now running out had this provision of 20% climate mainstreaming, so that 20% of all the money had to be somehow related to that political objective. And I think that was a major achievement in terms of ensuring this transversal, cross-cutting approach. The new commission has, in my view, improved in the sense that they put both the climate and energy portfolio with Mr. Cagnette, and then they appointed a vice president to basically make sure that there was also a high-level political commitment to it. So in that sense, they already took some necessary steps. They worked in clusters in, on the inside. I think we're going to see more renewal with the new commission when it comes to ways of working. And you're open to that? You, you don't mind if they change the structure or figure out a new way to do this? I think essentially... The way they organize their work is their internal cuisine. What we, of course, expect as an industry is a professional counterpart and that things get done in a good way. My general view on the way forward is that I think we should build on top of what we have. As I said, we really spent five years doing very, very detailed legislation, renewable energy, energy efficiency, market regulation, ETS, and so on and so forth. And we have reviews of all these. So I think that for us, the next priority would be to make sure that we set a, a long-term framework for this and that we get a very clear horizon and a very clear view on where Europe is going in 2050 and then that we look at what do we have and, and build on top of that. The next steps in the energy transition are about going towards transport decarbonization, decarbonization of the heating sector, decarbonization of the big industries, and also looking at agriculture. The power sector has been the the prime object of regulation for many years, and now we're really seeing things happen. Renewables are on the rise, coal is on its way out, and we are now in the midst of, let's say, grappling with this very big transition in terms of how the system works, because we need to decarbonize fundamentally transform the sector on the inside at the same time expanding 
the ability to deliver power to the rest of society at the same time. This is the twin challenge that we're grappling with these days. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's time to let you get away on your holiday. Excellent. Thanks. That was Christian Ruby of Electric and the Electrification Alliance. Next up, Politico reporter Anka Gozu. Joining me now on EU Confidential is one of our energy reporters, Anka Gozu. Welcome, Anka. Thank you. Hi. So the reason we've asked you on is you had a rather interesting little car trip recently. You took a hydrogen-powered car for a long test drive, and now you've written an article which described having a hydrogen car at your disposal as, quote, a high-risk riddle. Can you tell us what did you mean by that? So yes, me and my colleague Paula Tama, we had the chance to test drive a hydrogen car. It was a Hyundai Nexo. And the reason why we said that is because there's not that many hydrogen fueling stations around. So when you do decide to drive this car, you have to actually plan your trip very well. And did uh, you? Well, actually, uh, we had some unexpected surprises along the way because the goal was to actually go from uh, Brussels to Amsterdam. And what we wanted to do is a fuel up in Rotterdam because the car itself can run for about 600 kilometers on a fuel mm-hmm. tank. And we started with, I think, less than 500 kilometers. And it's about a four hour round trip between Brussels exactly. and Amsterdam, isn't it? So by the time we got to Rotterdam, we checked on the map, where is a fueling station? And uh, we reached that spot. And actually, the unexpected surprise was the fact that you needed to have a special membership card to fuel up. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that. That doesn't sound like a very good business model for the fueling station. Exactly. So we were pretty frustrated about that as well. And we desperately tried to call that emergency number that was listed there. And we spoke to one of the guys there to try to get us a card, even though it was a Saturday. That didn't work out. So this is kind of like a no-staff situation. It's a a little pump somewhere and you don't have a person you can talk to. Exactly. There's no one around, really. Mm. And I think the reason why they have this kind of system, it seems, is because most of the hydrogen cars are now at a business-to-business level. So it's businesses that decide to buy a fleet, for example, for their staff. So hence, they created the system that targets only people with special memberships. But obviously, that's not something we knew. So it kind of threw our entire plan out the window. And we had to make a decision at that point. We could have risked it and go to Amsterdam, where we knew there are more fueling stations, but it was the same company owning them across the Netherlands. So we decided we're going to turn around and go to Brussels. And who lent you the car in the first place? How how did this special day come about? It was a proposal, actually, from Hyundai here in Brussels, because I think they were keen to show what this car can do. And we already knew a little bit about some of the challenges with just hydrogen itself and its availability and the fueling station. So we decided to test it out ourselves. And what's the look and feel of these cars like? Did they feel different to an ordinary petrol or diesel powered car? The car itself is an SUV style car. It was pretty large. Inside, we like to joke around that it looked a little bit like a spaceship, just a design. It felt like a powerful, easy to drive car. It's obviously an automatic car. It has to be. So 
the driving part of it was really smooth and fun, I would say. And if we think about what are the advantages of a hydrogen car, is one of the sales pitches that it's a very green form of transport? I'm trying to think, why would someone choose a hydrogen car over, for example, an electric car or a solar-powered car? It depends how you look at it. In itself, a hydrogen car only emits water. So when you drive, you just like here and there see trickles of water on the ground. So that's it. It's very clean itself once it's fueled with the hydrogen. Now the question is, where does that hydrogen come from? And here's where the debate starts, right? So what happened in our case is that we had to go back to this small town close to Brussels, actually, to fuel up there where Kohlreut, which is a big uh, grocery chain across Brussels, owns that. Now there, what they've done is they already have a hydrogen production facility inside their company there that's sourced from a wind farm that's on site. So there, the hydrogen is green, so to speak, because it comes from renewable energy. But most of the hydrogen today is actually sourced from natural gas. It can be sourced from other fossil fuels as well through different processes. And that itself was its own controversy where some people say natural gas is the greener of the fossil fuels and other people say it's just going to extend the shelf life of fossil fuels and we need to get out of fossil fuels entirely. That's a good point as well. Definitely gas is cleaner than coal, but it's not as clean as renewable energy. So perhaps as the European Union is actually starting to discuss and debate a bit more this terminology of green gases, one of the things that they have to look at right now is how do we define them? How are they sourced? Because again, to go back to the car, once you drive it, it emits just water. So it's clean, right? But where the hydrogen comes from is still up for debate. Now, one of the other questions, I guess, is how do we get out of this chicken and egg situation of the lack of fueling points? Is it going to be the car manufacturers themselves that will have to subsidize these points? Or is it going to be a little bit like the battery situation with electric cars where some kind of public or government body decides to get involved and help roll them out? I think the answer to that question depends on who you ask. Car makers would say they will willingly create more cars if there are enough infrastructure points out there in fueling stations so that customers are attracted to buying that kind of car. There's the other side of the story as well, which is we need the cars to justify why these fueling stations are needed. So I think after reporting on this story, really, the answer is that you need both. And there seems to be at least support or understanding from the European Commission that some sort of funding help is needed as well. And it's not that anyone is really advocating that you need only hydrogen cars. What they're saying is that there needs to be a mix of different solutions. So electric cars, hydrogen cars, cars that run just on natural gas, which is another... Um, Alternative. Exactly. So it should be a mix. And when we spoke with the European Commission as well, what they are saying is that really there should not be just one solution. Our focus should be distributed on a variety of options so that we get it right in a combo. So it seems like you were a little bit anxious with this fueling situation on the trip. Do you think that is a hurdle all new drivers are going to have to overcome? Is it something that you felt when you tried other new forms of transport? I definitely think it is a hurdle for new drivers. It's something we experienced ourselves because you're kind of restricted in terms of where you can go, how far you can go. And 
you definitely don't have this issue when you drive a diesel car, a petrol car. I think with electric cars, obviously, there's still a bit of that anxiety because you also have to plan it well, but there are more options than you have right now for hydrogen cars, that's for sure. Now, one of the other downsides of being in heavy traffic or being around polluting cars is that there's obviously pretty terrible air pollution in a lot of cities across Europe. And maybe it's not as bad as the rest of the world, but, you know, there's a problem there. And I was interested to read that this car has an air purification system. Was that specific to Hyundai or is it something that's a feature in hydrogen cars in general? I think it's a feature uh, for this specific car and it's something that they're keen to promote as well. It basically purifies the air around as it drives. The other good thing time-wise about this car is the fact that unlike an electric car, it only takes about five minutes to fuel up. When you're allowed to. When you're allowed to, which finally we were allowed to. But then the station just outside Brussels, they have an open model. They don't have this membership model. So you can pull on up with any old hydrogen car and, and buy the hydrogen from them. That's right. And the reason why they can do that is because they have a hydrogen production facility on site because they use it already to fuel up their own car fleet as well as the forklifts they use. So they just made an extension of it. It was a bit of an experiment for them. And now it seems that they want to engage in future projects to expand this as well. But in those cases, it's not yet clear whether the hydrogen will be source from renewable energy or from other sources. Well, maybe that's somewhere where the EU could regulate. If it's not willing to fund, it could at least mandate that the hydrogen has to come from green sources. Perhaps we will have to see. Well, we're a green podcast, so we're going to roll with that one. (laughs) That's right. Anka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The podcast panel will begin after this message. A message from Bayer. Advancing life. That's what we at Bayer are all about. As a leading life science company, we are contributing to finding solutions to some of the major challenges of our time through our innovations. We also meet our responsibility to protect the environment in many different ways. We are continuously working to reduce the environmental impact of our business activities and develop product solutions that benefit the environment. For example, we offer innovative and cutting-edge digital farming technologies that help farmers use resources more efficiently. From sensors to satellites to smart irrigation systems, digital technologies enabling farmers to take advantage of the data at their fingertips to build successful farms and make agriculture more sustainable. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. And now it is time to welcome back the podcast panel. Hello, Lena Abarus, almost ready for holidays. Yes, tout à fait. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Awafin. Yes, I can't wait. It's going to be great. So I've got a little bit of news that I needed to break to you ladies. Well, actually, that's not true. You know already. But I'm going to break it to everyone else. If you hadn't heard the rumors, I am going to be moving to the United States very soon. So I hope to continue to be involved in EU Confidential, but this might be one of the last podcast panel tapings that we're going to do. It's a sad moment, but we're so happy for you, Ryan. Pastures green, and you get, of course, to follow what is no doubt going to be a very fascinating roller coaster of US elections. Yes, let's talk about those. It's just been the second round of democratic debates, and I thought maybe we could sort of ruminate a little bit on the differences between the US election and the EU election. And that could be policy-wise as well. 
but also, I mean, like, I feel quite engaged in this US process, not just because I'm going to move to that country, but also it's so transparent and it goes on for so long. And the depth of the discussion is, you know, frankly, a little bit deeper than the EU election we've just had. Is that similar to your reactions? How, how are you engaging with this endless election? It's so obvious everyone would be engaged just for the fact that you have a president like President Trump leading the free world, leading the US. If President Trump wins the next uh, elections, we will have another four years of uh, a new dynamics for the multilateral world. Yeah, I think that most people that I know who are politically engaged and have, you know, political opinions and things like that, they watch the US elections every year you know they go to parties they follow the debates much more so than they do for example the eu elections i know some people who would follow the us elections you know really quite closely and then they don't even vote in the EU elections and i do wonder why that is of course it's about the mammoth in international affairs that the us is and the role that they play i think as well there's a fascination with you know, US culture, and it's it's really become the dominant culture in a range of different areas like music and TV and movies, etc. You're so, onto something there. I think the US election is also a better show. So yeah. you, have, you have Trump as the reality star, but if you look at those debates, the level of sort of training and precision and theatre that, that go into all of those sort of well-deployed jabs and one-liners and things like that. It's kind of fascinating and expensive. It's obviously a very expensive process Mm -hmm. compared to a European election. Yeah, no, you're true. There's a level of showmanship that is at once appealing, but also I don't necessarily know that I would want to take that and bring it into Irish politics, for example. Think about, so Marianne Williamson, so she's the self-help guru and author. Yes, yes, yes. I think she had some breakout moments and... I think Americans are having big problems processing the idea that someone that comes from that background can contribute on that debate stage. I don't think it's all that different to if you had an Oprah Winfrey sort of character up there, but she's not, she doesn't have a conventional rhythm and story that most politicians have. And she talks in this kind of emotional, almost psychic language sometimes, but also it resonates. And it's funny watching Americans unable to process sort of what she is doing on that stage, Mm. or at least insiders in American politics. I do think there are way too many candidates. It's so annoying to watch this process unfurl when you know that Trump has the attention, the complete and total attention of the Republican media, but also of the left-wing media. So he is, and also we know how much more likely the current incumbent is to be elected. And then you have this Democratic runoff which involves just so many different characters, voices, people's identities. You know, what's their narrative? What's their... It's almost like a national draft. Like the entire country could be the Democratic candidate and we're just going to pick one at random. Well, yeah, no, and I did. I had this conversation with an American and the whole thing is that anybody should be able to be president, right? So they didn't really mind this idea that they couldn't limit... Apparently that is absolutely true. The American dream really is alive when it comes to that aspect of democracy. Something for Europe to be inspired by, no? Instead of having a Spitzerkandidat and, and then you pay all this amount of money for the debates and all of a sudden you have a president that oops, 
she didn't rally. <laughs> imagine that. Imagine the Democrats like, just chose someone that never turned up to any of the debates. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. which is well, literally what Europe just did. Something maybe maybe in the coming five years, Europe can change. You never know. Yeah. Well. Isn't it? Is it? I mean, there's some down points to it. You know, I think there has to be, of course, Hillary Clinton was totally slated and the Democratic Party were totally slated for having basically managed it so that she would become the Democratic candidate the last time. And there was all the leaked emails and etc. But I do think that, you know, they really need to look at themselves and really come together to make sure that Trump doesn't get elected again. And I think now you can see there's deep political and ideological divisions, which doesn't help, right? It does, it does, well, it's not going to help you them say win. That. I think that they definitely have policy differences, but even the most moderate of those candidates, I think, is significantly to the left of what many Democratic candidates would have been prior to Barack Obama. I think even the moderates on that stage are more left-wing or close to being as left-wing as Barack Obama. And he definitely wasn't at the right edge of that party. So I think the whole thing has shifted, and now you've got a debate exactly between moderates and more left-wing, but I don't think any of them are anything that I would classify as right-wing or even centrist. There are a couple that would you would say are kind of like probably in the political centre. Mm, I think there's there was a few. For, yeah. I mean, there were some people who were really... Well, they all want to expand public health care. Well, and the ways that they're going to do that, and particularly what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would like, was, I think, a very hotly debated thing. But then if you look at, at, at Europe... That isn't even on the table, you know. We have totally different ideological, and you know that people are saying, "Oh, this is bringing in socialism." And then, you know, I think Europe looks at <laughs> that's not socialism. Like, Europe looks at it and thinks, <laughs> "What? This isn't socialism." Like, you know, there are lots of socialist countries, and uh, and I think most European countries do provide a level of basic social services that is totally absent. Mm-hmm. In so, well, if I look at Lena, that, what about Jordan? What what is the level? Let's talk about healthcare in our own mm-hmm. countries, all non. American countries. What is the healthcare system back home for you in Jordan? It depends on the income. So the lower income you have, the more the government supports uh, mm-hmm. in all the uh, But everyone gets a safety net if they everybody, want Everybody, everyone, okay. uh, from the moment you are born until the day you retire. And if you gain more money, it is less. And then we uh, depend on the private insurance. And this changed. So, but are um, you obligated to have a private insurance or it's no, always just... No, it depends on your, your income. Choice. So if you, yeah. I, I think if you are making more than... 50,000 dinar a a year, you don't get anything from the government and you have to go to the private sector. Mm -hmm. Unless you are, God forbid, if you have a mortal disease like cancer, you are all under the national health net in Jordan. And it changed Mm -hmm. and it's getting better, I think. You've had dramas in Ireland, Alva. What's the system now? For sure. I mean, everybody should have access, right? But then we also do supplement sometimes with private. But, but we... yeah, anyone can walk in and they need an emergency surgery. It's going to happen. No one's asking for the credit card before. That, no. That and then you it. you also might have to wait a long time. And I think that's one of the scandals. We had another scandal where, yeah, women, yeah, we were all getting free smear tests mm-hmm. to check for cervical cancer. But that was privatized out and was done by a U.S. company. Um, and there was false negatives and not, uh, well quite a number of women have already died as a result of that yeah. so we do have really endemic problems within our health service that are a big huge problem but i don't think anything comparable to the lack of universal access to health coverage mm-hmm. that is happening in the u.s and it should never be that if you are diagnosed with an illness that you wouldn't be able to go 
to the hospital yeah. for fear that you will be bankrupted. Mm -hmm. Catastrophic payments is a big thing in the health system. I mean, it's akin to a developing country's system, you know, where people have to go and pay out of pocket. And if you don't have the money, then oops, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, you have the best care for some, but very, very poor care for others. In Australia, the system is, we have a system literally called Medicare. You get a credit card, which is your Medicare card. So yes, you always have an entitlement to basic universal health care. But then things like elective surgeries and so on, it's kind of on you whether you want the basic option, which is the public option, or whether you want a better version of the service, which you have to pay for yourself, or you have to pay the extra costs yourself. And they have a quite strictly incentivized system. So essentially they say that you have to make a sacrifice towards your own health. And that depends on your level of income too. So you can either go and take out the private health insurance that you prefer to cover, I don't know, for example, physiotherapy or gym memberships and things like that. Um, and if you don't do that, there will be a penalty added to your tax bill. So you'll pay either way. You can just be penalized in your taxes if you don't want to think about it, or you can go and choose a supplementary insurance. But the Medicare and the private insurance coexist. Yeah. It's not that you have to eliminate yeah. everyone's private insurance. Mm -hmm. and, and I know my mother has emphysema, so she has made a lot of use of this private system. And I would have always thought, oh, yeah, Medicare, it's amazing, it's great. And then you watch some of the flaws in the system. Yes, yeah. And because she's not considered a customer, she's just standard patient, they left her off five of the six waiting lists for her lung transplant. Mm -hmm. They just didn't do the paperwork properly for it. And now she's on the six state waiting list. But for most of the first year of being in that system, they just didn't put her on the other list. And you're like, you would have had the butt suit off you in America if someone had done that. Well, I think as well that it, it's there by quality, right, too. And I think that some people will point to the U.S. system and say that you can get the best healthcare in the world in, in the U.S., which is absolutely true, but you have to pay a price. And that is not how equality works, right? It's mm -hmm. not about the size of your bank balance. It should be, a, well, in my view, it should be an inherent human right that everybody has access to the same level of services. And then you can also have something like we also all live in Belgium now and I think it has a good. It's much cheaper than in Ireland. If I look yeah. at how much I'm paying here versus how much I would pay there, but they so don't it's literally cover thousands of euros. I yes. just had a tooth pulled, and it has to have an implant put in. And I was trying to do it before I go to America to save. Um, the first leg of that process, eleven hundred euros. I got seventy-seven euros back. Mm. Which wasn't very socialist, in mm. my opinion. Well, there is Dentalia, which you would ask for on, on top. Yeah, on your... Well, I thought I, I had registered years ago for Dentalia yeah. Plus, and then they told me a couple of years ago I didn't, and then I was thinking, screw you, I'm not going through this again. Yeah, well, that's a reminder <laughs> to all of you to check what your insurance policies are. But exactly. I do, like, it does speak to, while we can envy the electoral system in the US, I also look at the US as kind of a little bit of a monster in some ways. If you look at their human rights track record, if you look at what's happening on the borders, if you look at what's happening with ICE, their immigration, I mean, you can say that we dehumanized people with our response in the EU to the migration crisis. I don't think it's comparable in any way to separating families, to having children in cages. But it's because we don't see all the people that Europe allowed to drown or never saw drowning. Like there's an intentional aspect to the US policy, which is very dehumanizing and concerning. And because we don't see those boats and life for us that just never made it to Europe. No, yeah. well, I think that the EU also funded to have search and rescue missions on the Mediterranean. It used I to think it's got rid of them now. Some governments within the EU asked for those to be gone. 
And I don't necessarily think that's a problem of the EU itself. The idea of the EU is meant to be based on mm, human rights. But it's been a bit yeah. lampooned mm-hmm. by certain nefarious, quite Trump-like yeah. administrations. But well, I don't... the sad thing is it's all just copying the playbook Australia created in 2001. Like, it's almost... Well, it's not hilarious because it's, it's deeply tragic. But it is astonishing the extent to which the same patterns are playing out in both Europe and the US by different actors to different extents. But, you know, it's just it's just like watching an old VHS tape from Australia 20 years ago. But Jordan, of course, takes exactly. millions of refugees. Exactly. We have one million point six. But I will say this. I will say this. When I was in Amman earlier this year with Alva, I did not see many of those refugees. They're, well, they're yeah. tucked away neatly in the camps. I, I did go to visit a camp, actually. Yeah. Mm. And on the way that, there... That it's itself is a trek. It's not like you're just going over to the next zip code or postcode, is it? No, it was, it was a bit of a trek. But some, some of them do live in Amman. But I would say that... I mean, that we could go into the ins and outs of, of having camps, which I don't think is the best way to deal with refugees. They suddenly become very, they're like cities. I went to one actually at the end of that trip. But I think one of the things that I noticed and felt really troubled by was people told me what the effect has been on social services in Jordan for Jordanians. And yeah, literally in some places, the refugee children go to school in the morning and then the Jordanians go in the the afternoon and neither of them get a whole day of school. And I think if you compare that Mm. to what's happening here, we could easily... Yeah, take take in millions of, of refugees and everybody would be able to go to school. Speaking of health as well, they have exactly the same access yes. to health services like any other Jordanian with a very limited income. Uh, yeah, I find that tricky. I mean, that was a big question in the first round of the democratic debates in mm-hmm. the US. And you can see why it's a political hot potato mm-hmm. that you would offer that. At the same time, the, the US context is a bit different to some other contexts where you have a lot of undeclared immigrants, basically, you know, the undocumented yeah. But they're often paying their taxes. They are contributing to the system. So why on earth would you want them to not have health care? The point is you want everyone to be in decent health, regardless of Well, Ryan, it's interesting that you say that because I think that studies have shown that most places do provide emergency services. So if you're having a heart attack or something, someone will pick you up even if you don't have papers. That's usually what would happen in most countries. But the thing is, if you provide emergency care, which is so much more expensive than providing preventative or et cetera care, mm-hmm. it actually ends up co- costing the taxpayer and the government more money not to allow mm-hmm. access to... But you're right, it is a political thing. And I think in the US it's even more difficult because not everybody... You know, U.S. citizens don't also have the same access as as we would here. So it is totally linked to that. But yeah, I think if a place like Jordan that's taken in millions of refugees can provide health services and their social services have been impacted by this and they're still treating them like human beings, we have a lot to learn from the Middle East. I mean, you you always say that we can learn from the EU in your region but I mean that is to me something that we can learn from you that's an extension of hospitality and solidarity that we could be showing there we go learning from each other from around the world that is the spirit of EU confidential what a great way to wrap up this discussion Lena Alva thank you so much thanks Ryan thanks Alva yeah it's been a wild ride thanks as always to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin back soon 